So, uh, Brian is our table table host, and he's an awesome guy, but maybe you could just give a little bit of what you do, what your job is, like, how long you've been going to Sunnybrook? Um, <clears throat> so, we've been going to Sunnybrook uh, about a year and a half, two years. Um, I am one of the air traffic controllers out at the airport. Um, my wife, Beth, uh, she works for OSU, and we've got two kids. Yeah, and they're a lot of fun. Maxwell is a huge, like, just like me. We play video games. He loves Legend of Zelda. It's awesome. Um, so our first question as to uh, Gospel Center Living is, how has the message of Jesus shaped your, your life, uh, specifically in the areas of um, your job, how you view the church, and your family? Um, so to start out, I guess, a uh, little bit about me, um, I grew up in the church, um, my granddad was a preacher, my dad was a missionary, the first 10 years of my life was spent in the mission field with my dad, um, so I was raised in the church culture, um, I was always a part of the youth group, but I think I just believed because I, it was the culture I was raised in, and I believed because that's what my parents said we believe. And I never really owned it for myself. Um, I think I was a perfect example of, like, the seed that was scattered amongst the thorns. You know, I heard the word, but I think the problems of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the love of other things kind of just choked it all out, and I never did anything with it. Um, you know, in the end of that verse, it says that, you know, and it proved unfruitful, um, and that was kind of my life for 30 years. Uh, I think that unfruitfulness just led to... Um, selfishness, anger, bitterness, and just kind of an unpleasant person all around. Um, so, um, thankfully now, because of the Holy Spirit, that's not who I am anymore. Um, so, as far as when it comes to work and when it comes to uh, home, um, there's this quote by Dallas Willard I really like that says, uh, the gospel is less about how to get into the kingdom of heaven after you die and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before you die. Um, and so that's kind of the model that my wife and I have kind of tried to take the last couple of years. So how do, we, how do we live in the kingdom of heaven? You know, Jesus gives a couple examples. The kingdom of heaven is like this, and it's like this. And so, um, you know, it boils down to loving God and serving God. And so we kind of try to do that in every aspect of our lives. So for me personally at work, um, I live in a, or I work in a, 10-foot by 10-foot glass box with the same four people every day, all the time, and personalities get hot. So um, it's helped me to remember that they're, these other people are made just as much in the image of God as I am, and they need the gospel. And um, they, I might be their only exposure to the gospel they get. So uh, that's changed how I interact with them, how I talk with them, um, how I serve them. Um, and so overall at work, that's just, I try to be that example and that light for them. Um, at home, um, you know, it's similar. My kids have been entrusted to me to teach them. Um, and so I've, um, I'm more patient with them because of the gospel. Um, not always, <laughs> um, you know, but they're my responsibility to teach, and hopefully one day they will spread the word uh, because they love Jesus. Um, and when it comes to my wife, um, you know, I, I want to serve her with a, with a glad heart. Um, but I also want to lead by example, uh, which is a really hard combination to do. How do you serve and lead? And um, But Jesus gave us a perfect example of that. Um, and at church... Um, at church, it's just taught us how important it is uh, to be a part of a community that loves Jesus, um, that wants to serve Jesus. And so Beth and I have gotten more and more involved. We, we host a table group this semester. Um, Beth and I both help out on Wednesday nights. Uh, she has fifth grade girls. I've got first grade boys. Um, and we'll just follow these kids along until they graduate. Or, uh, and it's, it's neat. So, yeah. yeah. Well, dude, I think that's awesome, because um, that's, I mean, honestly, a, a lot of our stories is we started out, I mean, we grew up in that, in this environment, at least mine, um, and then like, we just became true 
followers of Christ through some kind of um, some kind of something that happened in our life. And, and my next question is: um, Is there is there was there a time or like an instance that 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 shifted for you, like that, that you weren't really following, and then some like something happened, and then you opened your eyes were open. Um. So. Zane, the youth minister, he's been he's going through the series, and last week he talked about you know how important it is that what you put in your body is what you know comes out, and so he's using this exercise metaphor for the gospel, um, and so um, as soon as it kind of became my choice, I joined the military, and it's kind of notoriously rough and gruff and foul jokes, and I just kind of sadly excelled in that culture, and I didn't put anything good in my life, and. Um, you know, I just, it was breaking my wife's heart. And I think just eventually seeing that something absolutely, that it was me who needed to change um, and nothing she could do was going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but that wasn't one moment that was like eight years of yeah. <laughs> moments. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, one, one last thing uh, for us younger Christians who might be on a similar path or uh, um, can just relate, what, what would be one piece of advice that you would, you would give to us as it comes to gospel-centered gospel living? Um, you know, we've been given the Great Commission, you know, and to go out and to spread the word. But to do that, we, we need... Uh, a base of operations, you know, so we, we really need a community, um, of like-minded people who love Jesus, who want to serve Jesus, who want to live in the kingdom every day, um, so that we can fuel up, so we can learn, so that we can go out and do that. Uh, so it's just so important to surround yourself with a community like this one, yeah. table groups, whatever it is, but the people you hang out with, the people, you know, they influence you. Yeah. Um, and so it's just really important to, and my wife told me specifically to say this, that, that it's so important that when you're finding someone you want to marry, that they love Jesus more than they love you. Because if that's true, if, if you both love Jesus more than each other, that you can get through anything together through that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brian, for coming up here. So I have gotten to know Brian over these last couple of years and, and uh, you know, have really, when, when Drew and I talked about somebody in our church that exemplifies living a gospel-centered life and somebody who's been making, actually, I'm going to keep that, I might sit on it, um, someone who's been making decisions and thinking through the gospel and how to lead their family and how to um, do their career, I mean, Brian was the first guy we thought of and so really cool to, for you guys to get to hear and to see somebody who lives here and who has a family and uh, loves Jesus and is, is living for him. So thankful for that. Let me, let me pray and we're going to jump into 2 Corinthians 8. So let me pray. God, thank you for this amazing grace that you have given us to be able to know you and to understand who Jesus is and I'm thankful for the way you grab a hold of our life, um, the way you are patient with us when we, for years, will deny you, turn our back on you, chase other things. And God, you are patient and you have steadfast love and you are faithful. And so God, I'm thankful for that. And, and um, not only... Did we get to see a picture of that in Brian and his life? But, Lord, I think, I think many of us have experienced that already. And so I ask that that same grace would be given tonight as we try to engage in your word and try to hear and see the things that you're wanting us to hear and see. So God, help us to, um, to hear your truth and to integrate it into our life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to turn to Second uh, Corinthians eight. This is becoming one of my favorite texts. Um, the more I've gotten to study it, the more I have really been impacted by it. Um, so it's real simple. Paul's going to give three examples 
of, a, of, of giving and generosity. And the first two are pretty simple. Um, and he's going to be pretty explicit about it. And he's going to get into some specifics about how to give and how to, how to give generously. He's going to both, this is what I love about this section, he's going to both give us a greater vision for it and then also give us some, some particulars, some specifics, some like, okay, this is how you need to think about it. And he didn't just leave it, he doesn't just leave it in the clouds. He brings it down for us, and I, I have come to really appreciate this. So, I need somebody to read. When you, okay, Becca. <laughs> Becca. <laughs> yeah, she wins, she's closer. Becca, read, just read verse 1. So, right, right away, you need to know something that has kind of changed in the tone of this. If you were reading the letter from beginning to end, you would think, okay, what happened? What's, what's changed here? Because the first seven chapters, Paul seems to be pretty, um, pretty specific and clear about his expectations of them. That Like, they need to repent. They need to turn. They need to not follow these other people. They need to trust him. Ultimately, they need to trust God. They need to trust the gospel. And then... Chapters 8 and 9, he kind of goes into a, a more of a, an encouraging, I'm proud of you, you guys are doing great. And it's like, wait a second. So s- some people um, want to say, well, Paul, maybe Paul didn't write this, or maybe this was just added in, and it doesn't really go there. Um, but I think it does fit pretty well. In fact, I think even the last few verses of chapter 7 kind of start this upswing. Because even the very last verse, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Um, you, you see Paul starting to say encouraging things. And it's almost like Paul sees himself, shocker, as this kind of father figure who is able to both say, okay, this right here needs to change. Like, this isn't right, and, and you need to trust me. And then come over here and say, you guys are doing great here, and I want to encourage you to keep this up, and I want to give you a greater vision for it, and you can do this. And I think that's what's happening here. So this first line Right off the bat, when I started studying this, this, this kind of confused me because I read several different translations, and depending on which translation you, you read, it, to me it sounded like something different. So here's the phrase. The ESV says, The grace of God that has been given among the churches. NIV says, The grace, of God ha- the grace that God has given the churches. The CBS version says, The grace of God that was given to the churches. The NLT says, God in His kindness has done through the churches. So, which is it? Is it that God gave grace to these churches in Macedonia? Or that God worked, God gave grace through them to someone else? And, and what's interesting about this is the answer is, I think, yes. Um, because God gave grace... And we know this because of their desire to give and their, their ability to give and even beyond measure. And so their, their, um, their desire to bless someone else through, through the ministry of giving was an evidence of God's grace in them and ultimately God's grace through them. So, so to be able to give, um, to be able to give with this this desire to give is, is an evidence of God's grace. That's what Paul's saying. So grace um, is behind giving. And there is a divine element to giving. And so to be able to make an impact, to be able to, to um, recognize that you have the resources and to want to use those resources to bless someone else is a sign of God's grace. So notice who, God's, notice who Paul's giving the credit to in this. He's not saying, look how amazing these churches are. You should be like them. You know, I don't know if you guys have a sibling that just always seems to do it right, and and you and you can't ever do it right. Um, Jared, you know this, anything? Um, and and you're why can't you be more like your whatever sister Becca? Seriously, Jerry. <laughs> um, so. That's, I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. He's not saying, you know, why can't you be more like them? Look how awesome they are. He's saying, look at, look at the grace that was given from God. And we know this because they gave. And we know this, that God did a work in them because of the way they gave. Now read verse 2. Okay. 
child, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Okay. So here's what we know about them. They, they had some severe test um, of an affliction or trouble or trial, depending on the translation you read. But we don't know exactly what that was. Then we know that their joy and their poverty overflowed into the wealth of generosity. So you have, you have affliction plus joy plus poverty equals generosity. How in the world does that work? Like, how does that make sense? Affliction plus joy plus poverty equals generosity. And Drew is actually going to dive into that a little more later. But notice the contrast that Paul is kind of, um, he's highlighting here. He, he talks about poverty and he talks about wealth. And, and so this question of how could they practice wealthy generosity from a place of poverty? That's a, that's a really interesting idea. I don't know if you've ever been on a mission trip or not to, to, a, to a third world country and, and been around people who are full of life and seem to have nothing. But, like I said, we'll have to find out a little bit later how that works. Read verses 3 through 5. Sorry, you're writing? Sorry, I can read if you Yeah, if she drops a ball, you jump in. <laughs> and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God, also to us. Okay. So Paul goes on to describe, here, here's what their wealthy generosity looked like. This is the way in which it worked out. Um, and he says, they gave beyond their means, and entirely on their own. In fact, um, they didn't just agree to help. They, um, they begged, they urged Paul to let them help. So, what would it take? What would it take for for this to happen in your life? For you to get to a point where you say, "I want to give beyond my means, and I want to give because I absolutely want to." Please, 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 let me do it. Like, think about that. And, and this isn't just one person. This is this is like he says the churches in Macedonia, which we know of. There's a few churches we know: Philippi, uh, Thessalonica, Berea. So we know these churches, Paul's written to two of them, and, and so these churches have experienced something that would cause them to want to give above their means because they absolutely want to, and they're begging Paul to let them do it. Now, there's three words in, in verse 4 that are huge church words in, in, in the New Testament. The, the first word in, in the ESV, it's favor, and it's the same word for grace, it's charis. Um, C-H-A-R-I-S. It's the same word. This word appears actually 18 times in the book of 2 Corinthians, second only to Romans. It appears 22 times. So in 2 Corinthians, grace is a dominant theme. And in our, in our 15 verses here, it's, it appears six times. So Paul's trying to make a very clear statement about this idea of grace, this, this gift, um, and the way Paul uses it in different ways. So he says, this, he talks about grace. Um, the, the word in the ESV is taking part. It's the word koinonia. And if you've ever heard that word, koinonia, it's, it's kind of like this, this word for fellowship or unity or, or, or people with one accord, people kind of bonded together like a family that's unified. Um, and then the word relief is a word diakone, which is the word for ministry or, or service. And it's literally... Charis, koinonia, diakone. In other words, what he's saying is that these people have been given grace and they begged and urged Paul um, for the grace to be able to share in, to have fellowship in these people's hardships in order to minister to them through the gospel. That's, that's, what, that's what Paul's saying. And then Paul says, and we, we didn't expect this. Like, we didn't expect them to do this. So, so what is it? What was... What was their motivation? And I think verse 5 is their motivation. I think um, verse 5 along with verse 9 probably are some of the top verses in this, the book of 2 Corinthians, in my opinion. So, he says, the reason they gave the way that they did was because they first 
gave themselves to who? The Lord. <clears throat> That's huge. They, they gave themselves to the Lord. And, and when, when the Lord had them, then He was able to, able to lead them to do the things He wanted them to do. First to the Lord, and then they, by the will of God, gave, them, gave their gift, their, their, their grace, um, their ministry to others. And so the order is immensely important. I think when we give ourselves to Jesus and He begins to shape our identity, He begins to shape um, the purpose in which we live, and the, the, way, the things that we care about and the things that we chase after, then all of a sudden, when He has all of us, He has all of us. When, when He has your heart, He has all of you. This one, one commentary said, The greatest expression of God's grace in a person's life is not its demonstration toward others, but its response to God and His cause. So, read verses 6 and 7. Okay. So, Titus has some history with this church, apparently, and we'll find out this a little bit later in this text, but we'll find out about a year ago, they were, this church was collecting to give to this, and, and by the way, um, the church that we, the ministry and the church that we think that the churches in Macedonia collected money for was the church in Jerusalem. Okay, so we think the same thing is happening. Paul is still collecting resources to take to the brothers and sisters in, in Jerusalem. And apparently a year ago they, they had started doing this, but maybe because of the problems that they had been having, they stopped. And so I guess Titus was a part of that. He's, so he, it says that um, it says Paul urges Titus to complete this act of grace. So what does that mean? Well, the word urge is the same word for begged in verse 4. It's the same exact word. So, so in the same way that these churches in Macedonia begged Paul to let them help, Paul begs Titus to go ask the Corinthians to help. He says, by, complete, by, by, by um, completing this act of grace, what he's, what he's referring to is, he's saying, let, he, he just gets done at the end of chapter 7 talking about repentance, and he's saying, let, let full repentance, I think this is what he means, let full repentance take its place so that, so that you have this desire to give, like out of an overflow of and a response to God's grace in your life. Like let, let um, repentance will, will be completed. Like your, your, your heart change, your transformation will be complete when you, after you turn to God and you desire to give because of the grace that you've been given. In verse 7, Paul concludes this, um, this use of the Macedonian churches as an example um, by encouraging them not, not just to excel in faith and speech and knowledge and all these other things, but, but generosity as well. Because Paul is he's highlighting something that we often prefer to overlook and actually sometimes completely ignore. It's this idea that God calls us to live an integrated life, a life of integrity, a life that doesn't separate parts of us and say, okay, yeah, I'm growing in faith, but, but m the money that I have is mine. Or, I'm, uh, sure, I'm, I'm growing in my ability to, to share the gospel or growing in the knowledge of God's word, but, but like, I'm, I'm doing enough there. I don't need to give anything. I don't need to give this money. I don't, this, this money that I have, I don't have very much, so it's mine. And, and so what Paul is saying is, no, it, it doesn't work that way. Like, don't just grow in these things and then ignore this. It, it's, it's a whole life belief. It's, it's a gospel-centered life. It's a, a life that's integrated. It's integrated faith. Um, so, God doesn't want us to just surrender parts of us to Him. He wants our whole life. He wants all of us. So read 8 through 10. Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my 
judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Okay. So it sounds like, in, in starting in verse 8, it, it almost sounds like Paul's saying, hey, this isn't really a command. And you could conclude maybe Paul's just kind of giving a suggestion. Hey, I'm, I'm not really saying you have to do this. Just saying, you know, think about it. And, and I don't think it's that passive or that weak of a statement. Because in verse 11, Paul's going to basically tell them to do it. <laughs> He's not going to shy away from saying, uh, you need to finish this. What you started a year ago, you need to finish it. You need to do it. So, in other words, well, instead, what Paul is saying is, basically, he's saying, um, in, instead of telling you what to give, I'm not going to command, this isn't a command the Lord is saying, this is how generous you should be and give this much. I'm just going to tell you to be like Jesus. Which, if you've ever come to me or, or Drew or another pastor and said, okay, help me to figure out, like, what should I do about this? Or... How much should I give, or um, should I should I spend you know the summer working at camp, or should I should I work and save money? Should I should I do a, a ministry internship? Should I do a career internship? After college, should I you know what should I do? And if anyone ever says just be like Jesus, don't you just want to slap them? Like, don't you just want to go? Yeah, I know, but then tell me what to do, okay? Please, all of you people are in this boat. I know. Talk to you all the time, Kelsey. Um, so it's like, just tell me exactly what you want me to do. And Paul's saying, listen, I'm not going to command you what to do. I'm telling you, be like Jesus. This is the example that we have. And so he gives this example, and he says this line, and I think um, verse 9 is incredible. The more I've reflected on this and meditated on this verse, the more that's there. But Paul, it's, it's kind of this... I don't know what it's called. I probably should have looked it up. But Paul says, you know, though he was rich, I'm not going to write it out. It'll take too long. Um, He says, for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. So he talks about riches, poverty, and he comes back to riches. What is that called? Anybody know? Drew? Chiasm. I knew how to word. Um, and, and what's interesting about this is, I mean, like, the use of the term riches and, and poverty, Paul, Paul is using, he's obviously not using economic terms here. He's using something else. He's, he's, he's talking about what he talks about to a church in Macedonia. So, I told you, um, churches in Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica. So, Paul says to one of these churches, actually writes to one of these churches, a similar thing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. He says this, he says, he's talking about Jesus, he says, who, though he was um, in the form of God, did not, e- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this idea of being grasped, I remember when I, when I first understood what this meant, it was like all these years, I thought he, I thought, I thought he meant grasp, because when we, t- when we say grasp, you know, I think understand intellectually, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, though he was equally God, he didn't hold on to his godness and just say, nope, I don't want to go down there, I'm going to stay up here and be God, or whatever, however that is, I don't even know. I'm going to stay everywhere and be God, that's what it is. Um, Instead of that, he says, no, he, he, he lets go of that. He doesn't hold on to that. He lets go of that. Empties himself and takes on the nature of a servant, the form of a servant. Think about that. The God of the universe, the King of the universe, who by all things and for all things and through all things are made, says, I'm going to become a servant and to give my life as a ransom for many. So Paul is telling the same thing to these, this church in Corinth that he told the church in Philippi. Um, let, your, let Jesus be your example of how you should give. Now that's, that's a tall order. And even, even the churches in Macedonia seem to be this tall order. But I think Paul's going to break it down here in just a little bit. I love how Paul preaches the gospel. If you notice, I'm thankful for 
um, a guy named Michael DeFazio who pointed this out to me. But every time Paul writes the letters to these churches, he'll explain the gospel in a way that they need it. And it's kind of like Paul has this beautiful diamond, this huge giant diamond that is the gospel. And with every church he writes a letter to, he just kind of turns it and helps you see a different facet of it. He, different, you know, he just kind of explains the gospel in different ways, and I love that. I think God, Paul gives us an example of, like, when we, when we say the gospel, it's not just Jesus died in our place for our sins, so you can go to heaven. I mean, it's okay, but it's so much bigger and so much richer. It involves everything. And, 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 and so this is, like, I love this because it challenges us to learn the gospel so well so that in, any, in every conversation it can be applied, it can be talked about, it can come up in, in our conversations. I love that. So, uh, read 11 through 15. Um, now finish the work so that your, your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Did you say 15? Yep, all the way through okay. 15. Our desire is not that others might be revealed while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. As at present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Okay. So after helping them see the Macedonian churches as an example, and after helping them see like letting Jesus be their example, the ultimate example. He now, he now kind of comes down into the weeds. He now kind of comes down to ground level and he helps us see like, okay, this is how I want you to think about this. I know you're wondering how much. I know you're wondering how to do this. And I think he starts to give not, um, he explains this not as like this is the rule. This isn't the rule of giving. But more of like this is a way to think about it in light of like a life surrendered to Jesus. That Like as, a, as, as you... As you trust Jesus with your life, and as you look to Him as your example, maybe this is how you think through this. So, like I said before, He commands them, essentially, in verse 11, to finish what they started a year ago. Um, and He says they should complete it, not based on what they don't have, but based on what they have. And so I don't think Paul here is pulling back and saying, well, you know, they gave a lot, Jesus obviously gave a lot, but you don't really have to give that much. I don't think He's... I don't think he's pulling back at all. I think he's just helping them, them discern, and I think he's helping us discern how we should think about this. And he says, you're not expected to give what you do not have, and therefore leave you, in, leave you emburdened. Okay? So think about what would happen if all these churches all of a sudden just said, okay, well, let's just give them everything we have. And, and what Paul's saying is, the point isn't to, for you to give so that you ease someone else, and all of a sudden now you're burdened. Because what would happen? Then everyone else would have to like, figure out how to help you. Um, and Paul's saying, like, don't cause more problems. That's not what we're asking you to do. We're, we're, we're asking you to give out of what you have, out, out of the abundance that you have. Um, there's this verse in, verses in Galatians 6 that I think about that really help me with this. Galatians 6, he talks about these two things. He says that, that um, there are burdens that we are not meant to carry alone. As a church, we should carry each other's burdens. It's one of the one another verses. Carry one, another ver- carry one another's burdens. But then a couple verses later, it says, each man should carry his own load. It's kind of it's interesting. I kind of think about it like this. Like if I was hiking with a group of guys uh, this past summer, um, Eric Sheets and Griffith Rourke and, and I went with um, well, Zane, or Zane? Zane's here. Zane and six or seven other of your buddies from from Sunnybrook. And so we were in Colorado at, at Youthquake. We decided to hike these four 14ers. It was awesome. Um, and and so we went together. But, but each of us had our own backpack. We had our own stuff that we were carrying. It was kind of our own load. But, like, imagine if, let's say, Zane sprained his ankle. And so Zane all of, a sudden, all of a sudden can't walk on his ankle. Well, that's a, that's a burden that he's not meant to carry on his own. Like, we, as the, the guys with him, 
kind of start taking, dividing some of his stuff up. We, we, we take his load, we help him down the mountain, and so this is something that we do. We, we carry each other's burdens, but, you know, but I have my own load that I need to carry. And I, I, think, I think Paul's alluding to the same kind of idea here. Paul doesn't want them to give out of guilt. He wants them to give like Jesus, out of joy. Listen to Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's saying right now you have an abundance that you, that you can share with your brothers and sisters who are in need, and, and, and it will enable them to be able to share out of their abundance as well. Which, by the way, side note, I thought this was kind of interesting, but most of the commentators, well, the two that I read, um, they, they believe that uh, they're, not, he's, they're not saying, or he's not saying, you give to Jerusalem church so that someday they can give back to you when you need it. He's saying, you give financially because that's what you can give. And, and they're kind of, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church was kind of the hub, was kind of like the, um, where everything kind of started. And so you give financially so they can give spiritually. I thought that was kind of interesting. But then he uses, then he goes to this very, he quotes this sentence at the very end. And it's the third example. Okay, we're down, down to the last verse. And now we have this third example of the Israelites in the desert. It's a really, really interesting story. I went back and read it. It's in, it's in Exodus 16. But he uses the example of God giving them manna in the desert. They were grumbling and complaining. They were, you know, they'd been in the desert long enough and now they're delusional going, oh, life was so great when we were in Egypt, you know. We could just eat and eat and eat, you know, just completely ignoring the fact that they were slaves and making bricks without straw and all this stuff. Um, and, and so God says, all right, I'm going I'm I'm to make bread fall from heaven. Like rain. I'm going to make it rain, God says. And so quail would come down at night, and then bread would, would kind of form after the dew. I, I don't know. They didn't even know. In fact, they, they, they said, what is it? When they saw it for the first time, what is it? Um, so it, this God just provided bread, and God commanded them. When you gather, he wanted them to gather one ephod. I don't know what that is. But it was an amount, let's say a basketful, for one for each person. Every person in your family, you gather one ephod. And if you gather more than that, um, then it'll rot overnight. If you try to store up because you know you're worried that I'm not going to provide the next day, and like you store some away and you gather as much as you can, all of it will like rot, and there will be worms, and it'll be gross. So, um, so this happened. So they they didn't trust God. They tried to gather more than they needed, and they woke up the next day, and there's worms and all this stuff were happening. Um, and so Paul, God says this line um, in chapter 16, verse 18. He says the exact same thing, almost word for word. Whoever gathered much um, had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So in other words, God wanted everyone to have what they needed. And, and those who had more... Then they need at the end. Of, at the end, it didn't really matter. And those who didn't have enough had just enough. Who didn't think they had enough had enough. And so it's it comes back to this idea of of God trusting that he that, of trusting God that he's he's going to provide. Like and, and I think that he's alluding to this idea of fear in giving, fear in being generous. Well, what if what if I give and I just I won't have and and what what Paul is saying is, if you get if okay, you surrender your life to, to Jesus, and if you give what He calls you to give, who do you think is going to take care of you? But Him. So, we'll come. We're going to take a break, and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about this idea of, um, yeah, poverty and affliction, and joy resulting in generosity. Let's take a break. <laughs> Corinthians here. Um, so throughout the scriptures, this idea of money and our attitudes towards money comes up quite a bit. 
it's, it's an important thing. The way you view money and what you do with money, starting all the way back in like the law in Leviticus, lines out the importance of taking care of your brother or your sister who is in need, who is in poverty. Uh, Deuteronomy will outline the same thing, that we take care of the poor. We get up into the Psalms and you'll see um, things about being generous and, and caring for the needy. The Proverbs talk a lot about that. Psalm 119 says, God, give me a heart that is inclined to, towards your word and not towards selfish gain. I want to have a heart that isn't built around trying to gather stuff to myself, and especially by selfish or by uh, dishonest means. I want to have a heart that is built towards gathering more and more of your words to myself. And, and then you get into the New Testament and the stuff continues. One of the main ones is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not use your money to try and store up a lot of treasure and stuff for yourself here on this earth. Instead, use it to store up treasure for yourself in heaven. In other words, use it for kingdom things. And then he says this phrase that's really interesting, for where your treasure is, where the stuff is that you want and love and value, that's where your heart will be too. And, and that right there is a great summary of the attitude that the Bible has towards money. This is why. Because what you make of money and what you value the most is what your heart is going to be running after. And, and so, so Jesus makes a point that, that we want to invest our money towards things that are in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, things that matter long term. And, and this text becomes a really good, a really big text on uh, helping us understand our attitude towards money, specifically in this area of generosity. Actually, not just this text. The next, um, so over the course of this next three weeks, Paul is going to outline things about giving and generosity. Um, we're going to be kind of sitting in this for a little bit, and it's really fascinating. Um, we will see in the next three weeks these three questions answered. What defines generosity? In other words, what is it about a gift or a person that makes it generous? What is it about a gift that makes it a generous gift? What is it about a person that makes them a generous person? What defines that? There's another question. What creates generosity? Like what enables a person to be a generous person? What causes that in them? And the third question. What is the result of generosity? What does generosity do in our lives? And uh, two of those questions get answered tonight in the text that Scott just read to you. And then the third one, you're going to have to wait two weeks for. The third one gets answered in chapter um, 9, into the end of chapter 9. Um, but there's some really good stuff in between those two that we're going to focus on next week. Um, and I'm excited to kind of talk through some of that. But we want to talk about two of those questions tonight. So the first one is this, what defines generosity. What's the difference between a gift that is really generous and just a normal gift? What's the difference between a normal person and a generous person? What's, what's like the qualification that makes that? And the most obvious and common answer today, um, and I think back then too, would be the amount given, right? Like that's how you define something as generous as if there's a lot of that gift, or if the person is a person who gives a lot of that gift. In fact, when we talk about donations or contributions or gifts, generous is basically our polite synonymous word for really big, right? Because it doesn't sound like as polite and formal and stuff to say, like, she gave a freaking huge amount of money to us. It, it's much more polite to say she gave a very generous donation. And we know what we mean by generous. Generous means a lot. She gave a lot to this organization or to, to this foundation or to this fund. Generous, the way you define it, is by being really big. In fact, when you Google, if you get on Google and you giggle, not giggle, when you giggle, <laughs> when you Google the most generous people in the world, what comes up immediately is those people who have given the most amount of money. Um, those people who have given out the most, which makes sense, right? So Business Insider has this list of the 20 most generous people on the planet. And, and it lists how much they have given over the course of their lifetime. And it's crazy. Um, There's some names on there, a number of them I've never even heard of. And then some that are fairly obvious. Um, Mark Zuckerberg 
comes in at number 14, and he has given, over the course of his lifetime, $1.6 billion away. More money than, more money than, like, all of us, if we had 100 lives together, would not be able to even get that much money. And he has given that much away. And that's generous. Business Insider says, 14th most generous in the world. Um, Michael Bloomberg is number eight on that list. And over the course of his life, he has given $3 billion away. But then, once you start getting down, especially just in like the top two, there's this gigantic jump. jump. Number two is Warren Buffett, who has given $21.5 billion away. Not earned, not, not how much he's had in his life. That's just how much he's given away. $21.5 billion. And number one, you, you probably know, is Bill Gates, um, who has given, I believe it was, yeah, $27 billion away. Um, which I, don't, I don't even know if I knew that there were $27 billion on the planet, like if there, that there was that much money in existence. I think Bill Gates is just printing his own and just handing it out like Monopoly money. Um, but it says he's given $27 billion away during the course of his lifetime. And he is like kind of largely recognized as the most generous man on the planet because, yeah, he's given away more than anyone else on the planet. And the world looks at those things and says, wow, that is incredible. That's just imagine the amount of people who've been fed by that kind of money. Imagine the kinds of schools that have been started. Imagine all the programs and charities that have been funded by what Bill Gates has given. More than like a lot of countries own like like own their their gross national budget or product. Bill Gates has given away more than that. And that is incredibly generous the world looks at and says, but this doesn't seem to be the measure actually that the Bible uses for defining generosity. Like there's this um, story in Luke 21, really short. Luke 21 verses 1 through 4, and it really is a great, a great little picture of how the Bible describes and defines generosity. Jesus is sitting in the temple courts with his disciples one day, and, and they're in there, and then they're in this section of the courts that has the offering boxes. And the offering boxes would have looked like something like this. It would have been just like a regular big box, but then like the opening into it was kind of like this, the, the mouth of a trumpet. And it was literally, it was made out of this like hammered metal. And so when people would come and, and give their money, it, it would like, you could hear it. It would make this clinging sound as it went down into the box. And so of course, um, in the middle of the temple courts, in the middle of the hustle and bustle, those uh, who who brought bigger, because they weren't bringing like wads of like paper, cash, they're bringing, they're bringing coins, they're bringing metal coins, and so these people would come in, and, and the very generous would come in with big bags and dump it in, you could hear it echo throughout the courts, um, it would have been loud, it would have been noticeable, and, and the disciples are sitting in there watching these people come in and empty bags of money into this temple treasury there, and then, and, and you know the story probably, <clears throat> This old woman, this widow, comes in, and she brings in these two, basically, pennies. And she sticks them in the, in the box, and, and Jesus kind of elbows his disciples, and he leans in, and he says, I'm going to tell you guys something right now. Of every person who's walked in here this day, that woman right there gave more than anybody. Because, Jesus said, she gave every bit she had. Those two pennies were all she had left. And she laid it out there in the temple forum. I am more impressed, Jesus says, with her than anybody else. That is what giving is. And, and Paul, I think, would agree with that. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 12. Scott touched on it. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Um. What he's saying is like, what, what is acceptable to God, what, what God wants is, he's not asking for a dollar man. He's not asking you to be the one who gives the most. He's not asking for $27 billion. What he's asking is from what you have. What The Bible looks not at what you give, but at what you are giving from. Like at what amount do you actually own? What amount do you possess? And what of that are you willing to give? This woman gave 100% of what she had. 
That is impressive. That, Jesus says, and I think Paul says, is generosity. The ability to give, not always the biggest amount, but the ability to sacrifice. So Bill Gates has given $27 billion, but his net worth is $84 billion. And, and, and the truth is, that leaves plenty of money for him. Like he's, not, he's not sweating giving away $27 billion. And I'm not dogging the guy. I'm telling you, man, $27 billion is amazing and a ton. And as I said, man, there's, there's been a lot of good work done, I'm sure, through what he gives. But I don't think that God is impressed with Bill Gates. I don't think, I don't think God looks down and applauds at $27 billion. For one, it's, it's, it's kind of small in comparison to what all Bill Gates has. And, and probably even more importantly, it's, it really is chump change compared to what God already has and what God gives every day. He's not impressed with $27 billion. That doesn't blow him away. God doesn't go, oh man, think of all the good we could do with $27 billion. That's not what matters to him. What matters is the generosity that says, I'm willing to sacrifice in order to be able to give. I'm willing to give even a larger chunk of what I might have in order to do those things. But there's another factor here, because it's not all about how much you're willing to give. What really kind of catches me on this is something Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians. Actually, if you've been following along, probably his second letter to the Corinthians, um, Corinthians B. But we call it 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 13, which is one of the more famous chapters in the Bible, the love chapter, he says this. Um, 13 verse 3, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body up to, the, to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Now here's what's fascinating. So I just told you what matters to God is like what you're giving from. What's really cool is the, the woman who gave 100% of her money away. That's what impressed Jesus. And here Paul comes and says, you could actually give 100% of your money away and still not be all that impressive. You could give... Bill Gates could give $84 billion away, every bit he has, and still not be giving in a way that honors God, and still not be giving in a way that God desires, still not be truly generous. And he touches on why, if I give all this and do not have love. So here's what we're touching up against. Look back at verse 12. This first phrase, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what one has. If the readiness, if, if the, uh, this word can be sometimes translated like a zeal or eagerness, if like an eagerness to give is there, then it is acceptable based on what one has, not what one gives. What matters is the kind of readiness in you. And actually, if you go back and look at this text, this is one of the first things I noticed when I started reading through, is all the passion and desire words that that Paul uses to describe how we ought to give. He goes back and he talks about the Macedonians and he says that they were not just giving because they were preaching, he said they were giving of their own accord. In other words, they came to us and said, we want to do this. We desire to do this. And then he says this, that they begged him for the favor, for the grace of getting to give to this thing. Not just, not just begged, he says they begged us earnestly in order to be able to give. And then Paul will go down and he says, what I'm wanting here in your giving is I want to see the genuineness of your love. I'm not, I'm not wanting to see what your pocketbooks can, can do. I'm not wanting to see how big the bag of money is that you bring. What I'm trying to test here is your love because that that's what matters to me and I'm testing it by putting it up against the earnestness of the Macedonians. That's how I can see these things. And then he'll go on and he'll speak of the desire that he wants them to have. And again, he uses this word a couple times, the readiness he wants to have. Over and over and over again, we see Paul talking about not how much they give. It's kind of interesting. Paul actually never uses any word for money in this entire text. Never says anything about um, denarius or or, uh, or coins or cash or anything. He never uses anything about money. And it's about money. It's about giving money, but it's not about money. It's about the heart that is given and what he, what he wants to see taking place in their lives. Um, that's how he measures generosity, is the, the desire that is coming with that. And that actually connects us with the next question, and that is, what creates 
or enables generosity? What creates it? And here again, we tend to float over to this idea of what creates generosity is the amount of money that a person has. What enables it? Um, what enables someone to give a lot is having a lot, right? And, and that's what keeps people from giving is not having uh, uh, very much money. Now, we, we recognize, of course, that there are other things that play into this. Um, we recognize that things like compassion need to be there, right? And so if uh, we recognize that a person, in order to be generous, you've you got to have compassion or kindness because there are people who have a lot of money, but they're still not generous. But we still kind of figure in lots of money to be key to that. And so our, uh, our kind of formula for generosity would be something like compassion or kindness or love plus wealth plus lots of money equals generosity. That when a person like Bill Gates has a lot to give, and when he has compassion, that is what enables someone to be a generous person like him. And that's what makes Paul's formula that Scott read off to you so astounding. Because Paul says the formula for their generosity was affliction plus extreme Poverty plus joy. And that's what equals generosity. It says this is, this is what created generosity in the Macedonians. Affliction and having no money. That's what enabled them to give money. That's what gave, enabled them. Now, now, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying you have to be poor to be generous. That's not what he's getting at. What this ought to tell us is that the amount of money you have is irrelevant for being a generous person. What you have is not what enables those things. And, and this is what's really important for us to catch because when I said most people think that, that being generous uh, is enabled by having lots of money, you may have thought, I don't think that, but I think we all tend to think that about ourselves. I think almost every one of us has thought in our lives, I will start to give when, and this is, this is a really big thought in college. I remember being in college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll give when I'm making more money. No, no, no. I'll, I'll totally be generous. I'll, I'll give to the church. I'll, I'll, I'll give. I'll sponsor Compassion Kid. I'll do all of those things. Once I start my career and I'm making a good enough money, I might have to pay off some debts first, and I'll do a little bit of that. And then, but once I got enough money, then, man, I can't wait to give. And this is something that we believe in ourselves, that what is keeping me from giving is I just don't have enough money to give it yet. But that's not true. That does not seem to be the way the Bible describes those things, because the Macedonians don't have money, and they're happy to be doing those things. Generosity does not come from a surplus. It comes from somewhere else. It comes from something else inside of us. Actually, I think both the Bible and experience would show us that actually if you think you're going to be more generous when you, when you make more money, you're actually working against what seems to be true. Actually, both the Bible and experience seems to show that um, making more and more money makes it harder to be generous. Research shows that, yes, of course, I mean, the most amount of money give, given comes from the, the people at the top because, you know, we can't compete with Bill Gates giving away $27 billion. But actually, studies show that it's the lower class that are more likely to give a higher percentage of their income away than the rich. So when they start making more, that you start giving less of that, less of that income away, actually. And, and, and the Bible, I think, kind of touches on this a little bit, even. The reason I would say that's true is because money has a tendency to be sticky. It is... It has a tendency to kind of stick to our hearts and to stick to our lives. And if you think that, well, all I need is just more of it, and then it'll just be easy to give away. No, 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 that's just more of it to stick to you. It has this tendency to want to hold on to us. And, and I have found to be true that um, the more I get established in my own life, the, more I, the further I get along and the more money I'm making, the, more, the bigger house payment I have. And the more car payments I have, and the more, the more stuff there is to lose if I start to sacrifice. And I found that it, it seems to get harder the more you make. And so I, I would tell you, if you think the reason you're not generous is because you don't have enough, 
if you think that I'll just wait until I'm making more and then I'll give, I'm telling you that that day might not come. Or, or you, you might give, but the kind of generous heart that Jesus is wanting to form in you, that might not come, even if you do begin to give a little bit more. So if the, the Macedonians' economic status is not the determinant, if that's not what causes people to be generous is how much they have, then what is it? Well, this is, it says, irrelevant. The poverty is not what's causing anything. And I would say the affliction itself does not actually cause anything. So then, what enables a person to be a generous person? Joy. Joy is what Paul seems to be pushing here. Now, you can add in there, of course, love, and you can add in there compassion, and you can add all of those things, but, but joy is what seems to be the driving force, at least in the case of the Macedonians. And, and I think Paul is hoping will be the driving case in the, in, uh, for the Corinthians. Now, don't get it backwards. I don't, think, I don't think Paul is saying the Macedonians were giving so they could be happy, because that's big for us, right? I want to give because it just feels good to give back. You know that warm feeling you give when you help somebody get when you help somebody else? That's what I want. I don't think Paul is saying they're giving in order to have joy. He's saying they have joy and that's why they give. They're already happy. They, they already have a happiness in them. That's what enables them. Now, of course, they're happy to in the giving. Giving makes them happy. But it's all kind of one piece. Because they are already joy-filled, then they can think of nothing that would make them happier than to give up some of their money for somebody else. That stuff gets them excited. Where does that come from? And the answer is in verse 9. This is where that joy comes from. This is where that heart comes from. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Um, and, and again, don't, don't get this kind of twisted. I don't think what Paul is saying to the Corinthians there is, you know, Jesus, He gave up a lot for you, so you better turn around and do the same for somebody else. I don't think he's trying to hammer them with some sort of guilt thing. And I don't think that's what it was with Macedonians. Now again, Paul doesn't mind kind of doing that. Paul doesn't mind saying, you ought to give. You've been given a lot. But I think what, what Jesus or what Paul is talking about is what the Macedonians experience, and that is this. I can give because I'm already rich. I, I don't have to try to save up all my stuff to get rich because I already am. Jesus became poor to make me rich. Jesus gave me this kind of life that I could not purchase with $84 billion. Jesus did something in me that gives me a wealth and an abundance of joy that can overflow into generosity. This is gospel-centered life. This is gospel-centered giving. Letting what Jesus has already done for me shape the way I'm going to live my life. Shape the kind of heart and attitude I have that will spill out into what Paul calls an overflow of generosity. To have that kind of mindset. I'm, I'm not saying that you cannot give a lot and that you cannot do a lot of good unless you really believe the gospel. I'm not saying that. Clearly, clearly Bill Gates is giving a lot. Clearly Mark Zuckerberg is giving a lot. Listen, people can still give a lot of money. You could still be a person who gives away a lot of stuff for a number of different reasons. People give to feel good. People give to look good. People give to, put, to get their names put on plaques or on libraries or on dormitories. People give to alleviate their own guilt. They give to get tax breaks. And sometimes they even give for good reasons because they really love someone. But the generosity that pleases God doesn't give for any of those simple reasons alone. It gives because it sees what Jesus has already done for me. And then, as Paul says, because of that, I give myself first to God and then freely give myself to others. Say so generosity, that's, that's not just about money, actually. It's about my time. It's about, it's about the energy of my life. It's about, about who I am that says, I have been made rich in so many ways. Let me, like Jesus did, empty myself out for other people. And what is the result when that happens? When I start to live that way, what, what happens in people's lives when we have that kind of generosity? That's what we'll get to in a couple of weeks. 
for now, we're going to wrap up tonight and, and then get into actually next week. We're, uh, just, just a little heads up. Next week, we're going to give you an opportunity to, to, to be generous, an opportunity to take part in the grace that has already been given over to you that we can spill over into other people's lives. So we'll tell you about that when we get there. Um, we've got, we have snacks, right? We do have snacks. All right, we got food tonight. And uh, that'll get pulled out here. Sweet. Man from heaven, also known as Red Rock. Donuts. Um, so I hope that you'll, uh, hope you'll stick around. If you're new, I'd love to, we'd love to meet you. Come introduce yourself, and we'd love to get to know you. Eat some donuts with us.